You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Morning, Pete. I'm I'm surprised that you Air Force guys are up so early, but uh, good to talk to yeah, you. Yeah, no, we, we yeah. Well, we see we fly at night, sleep during the day, John. That's how it is, you know. <laughs> John, you let, let's let's get to the basics. Uh, I, I told people you were destined to be a pilot, and there's a good reason for that uh, uh, remark. You were born into a family of aviators in Horseshoe, North Carolina. Tell us about your childhood. Well, I guess the uh, first and biggest influence was uh, my mom's brother, uh, my Uncle Earl, and he was uh, a pilot. He was a United Airlines pilot, and he had been a an instructor in primary training in World War II, so he'd flown the steerman and so forth. And uh, my dad was uh, a career officer with the 101st Airborne, and he was wounded uh, the second day of D-Day. Uh, my mom was a registered nurse, and uh, my dad uh, learned to fly. Uh, I guess my Uncle Earl had an influence on him, and uh, he learned to fly in about, oh, 51 or 52. And then my mom, who she had a, a fear of airplanes, but she overcame that and uh, became uh, a pilot herself in 1953 and <clears throat> there weren't many women pilots around uh, Hendersonville North Carolina back then but uh, she was she was uh, a, a fine fine pilot and um, the what the two of them were in the Civil Air Patrol so that gave them uh, an outlet for uh, you know a mission with their flying uh-huh. and back back in those days Pete the Civil Air Patrol was uh, the only people that went out and looked for airplanes that were missing. And really? that was up in uh, yeah, and that was up in the mountains of western North Carolina and pretty rugged and but uh, they found them all. Um, then it came up and then they'd have practice rescue missions and so forth. So they were pretty active in the yeah, Civil Air Patrol. Uh, yeah. John didn't your was your mother the first lady in North Carolina to be licensed as a pilot? I thought so. She was the only one, but then uh, as I dug around a little bit, I found out that there was a, a gal uh, before her. Okay. And uh, But she wasn't flying anymore, so <clears throat> my mom was it. <laughs> now, you mentioned the Stearman. Uh, a lot of folks listening may not know what the Stearman is. That's the biplane that all our World War II pilots trained in, and I think you did too, but you had exposure to a steerman in, during your childhood. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, you know, Sunday afternoons uh, for us was to the airport, and uh, that's that's where we'd hang out. <clears throat> no matter what the weather was, my dad would be out there flying because it's Sunday afternoon, and that was his day to fly. So, um <laughs> Meanwhile, me, you know, about 10 years old, I would hang around, sit in airplanes, and 
the ones I really liked were a couple of uh, Stearman dusters. Uh, so I'd go sit in them and daydream, you know, or they seemed like military planes to me. And and uh, so, heck, when I bought my Stearman in 85, the, uh, I opened up the logbooks and sure enough, there was my flight instructor's name in there signing off the 100-hour inspections. So, huh. most likely, that steerman that I have today and that you've flown in, um, I sat in it when I was a kid, and it was a duster. But originally, oh, yeah, the... Yeah, but originally, the steerman, you know, was the primary trainer uh, for yeah. both the Navy and the Army. And uh, just about everybody that flew in World War II went through the through the steerman. Uh, if they mastered that, then then they could move on to advanced trainers. That that is it's a good sturdy little uh, bi wing airplane, and I love flying it with you, John. I appreciate the times you take me up. That was a thrill to fly in the air show with you. Uh, that was a way that you can. You really, you guys really can fly precision formations and things, and I really respect you for that. How did you end up in the Navy, John? Uh, well, I came from really a military family. Uh, my dad, of course, was a, a career officer in the 101st Airborne, and uh, until he was wounded, and, and then uh, I had an uncle. Fred, who was in the Navy, he was on the Hornet from the time it was, that was the original Hornet, uh, really? CV-8, and he was on that from the time it was commissioned till it was lost at the Battle of Santa Cruz. So he was then, on the, uh, was he on the Hornet when Jimmy Doolittle took off on the B-25s to bomb Tokyo? He, yes, he was. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, we had lots of adventures uh, traveling here and there to reunions with his old uh, shipmates and going to Pensacola to the museum where they feature the Hornet flight deck. And, yeah, we had, well, we did that, all those things. And then I had another uncle, uh, Wade, who was a submariner, and he was, like the others, he was in the thick of it in World War II. Uh, He... He was on the USS uh, Barb with uh, a fellow named oh, yeah. Gene Flucky, and mm, Flucky was really an aggressive uh, skipper, and, well, he got four Navy crosses and a Medal of Honor, so I guess he must have been doing something pretty aggressive. Uh, I think the USS Barb submarine was the highest-scoring submarine in World War II, wasn't it? I would think it's, it's, it's right up there. There's a book out about that uh, called Thunder Below, which is referring to depth charges, which they took a lot of, but uh, anyway, quite a quite a book. But uh, I was uh, growing up, I'm, you know, books and models and movies, and it was all airplanes for me, uh, <laughs> seeing movies like uh, Bridges at Toko and Men of the Fighting Lady, you know. My goodness, uh, that's all I thought about was airplanes. And I soloed 60 years ago. uh, So I've kind of been a student pilot ever since. 
<laughs> was the Navy your first choice? Well, when I was growing up, I was thinking more Air Force, but then, uh, you know, men of the fighting lady and so forth changed me a lot. Uh, <laughs> I was walking through the student union down at East Carolina College, and I was kind of drifting around in college, and and here were these guys over there with a big fly Navy poster, and they were oh, all wearing these beautiful white uniforms and I thought maybe they were giving out ice cream or something at the first, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, they, I talked to them a little bit, and they said they had this uh, Naval Aviation Cadet program, and you didn't have to have a degree. You could have two years of college, and, hmm. and I, heck, I had three, so <clears throat> anyway, they offered me a ride in a T-34, and, and then as quickly as I could, I signed up and headed for Pensacola. What did you, uh, tell us a little bit about what you trained in, John, and uh, your first takeoff and landing from the U.S. Aircraft Carrier USS Lexington. Yeah, the, uh, after, after uh, the T-34 primary training, then, then I was able to get up to uh, McCain Field at Meridian, Mississippi, and that was basic training. And that was in the T-2 Buckeyes, so that was a jet, and suddenly, you know, you're flying an airplane that, well, it's a jet, and it, it does so many more things, and it flies faster, and it goes up and down better, and so I was, I was really, really happy flying that. And after we got through with that part, we, we would uh, go back to Pensacola for some gunnery, and uh, air-to-air gunnery, and uh, carrier qualification. So that was all about training. I mean, we got a, the Navy's got, of course, a really great training program for uh, flying off the carrier. You, it's called a field carrier landing practice, and you you're using the same uh, mirror landing system that you use on the carrier, and you got an LSO there, a landing signal officer, talking to you, and um, so you you just over and over and over you're making these approaches to the runway and so when you finally get out to the ship it's all pretty much the same and you're flying the the, the mirror landing system and watching your line up and keeping your angle of attack your airspeed just perfect as you can so it's really not not a not a big uh, big deal because you're so well trained Okay, very good. Now, when you that was out in the Gulf of Mexico where the Lexington was, right? Yes. All right. Now, it was, when a, you it first, was a training carrier. Yeah. When you first flew out there, we'll go on a break here in just a minute, but when you first flew out there and saw that carrier, like, from a distance, did you have any questions in your mind like, shoot, I got to land on that? <laughs> I remember looking down at it, and I said, yeah, there it is, uh, but... Actually, see, I'm flying on the wing of uh, of somebody, so there's not much time to be lollygagging and looking around. Uh, I'm just <laughs> flying my flying wing, and so you come in uh, up the uh, starboard side of the ship, and you break, and then you come around, and next thing you know, you're you're lining up with the deck, and <clears throat> and. Uh, and 
fortunately, well, actually, I think we did a couple of touch and goes first. So the hook up, mm-hmm. and um, then we come down. Of course, on the carrier, when you when you touch down, you go full power. Uh, yeah, and just in case you miss a wire uh, with your hook, then you can then you go around again. But uh, yeah. All right, John, when we come, we're going to our first break. John, when we come back, I want you to tell us about the incident uh, during training behind the controls of F-11 Tiger. Folks, we'll be right back. Okay. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Train when you're behind the controls of an F-11 Tiger. Okay, well, the uh, the Grumman uh, Tiger was uh, was quite a uh, quite an exciting thing for a student pilot to fly. It was uh, it was the first time you fly the airplane. It was solo. There were no two seaters, and and it was supersonic. First time you oh flew the airplane, it, you went supersonic with it, and um, and also, it's what the Blue Angels were flying. So it was, oh, it was uh, really a cool airplane. And there was only one squadron that still had those, and I, that happened to be at Beeville, Texas, where I was. And so I get to got to fly the F eleven. <clears throat> it was uh, it was a flying emergency. <laughs> it seemed like something always broke on them. They were really worn out <laughs> airplanes, but. Uh, uh, anyway, the uh, uh, the training was just excellent. We had a civilian guy who did the the training, and you knew that airplane and the emergency procedures backwards and forwards. So um, I was out uh, in the high altitude gunnery pattern where we're shooting at a a, a banner towed by another airplane, <clears throat> and see, and. I'm uh, getting ready to roll in, and then uh, this uh, 
oil pressure low light comes on and and uh, I see that I'm I'm in afterburner at the time and uh, just rolling in and the uh, oil pressure gauge was heading for zero right quick so um, I just uh, I took it out of burner and headed not for Beeville that was too far away but Corpus Christi which was the closest and I just the procedure is you set your power uh, at, I think, 86%, and, and it's downhill all the way because we were at about 30,000 feet anyway. So so I get down there uh, to uh, Corpus, and I enter the, the high uh, precautionary approach uh, pattern, and I get to the low key where I'm supposed to drop my gear. I drop the gear, and uh, the airplane just, like, fell out of the sky, and figure out what was wrong I sucked the gear back up and I knew I wasn't going to be able to make the uh, the long runway that I was headed for so there was a short one there about 5,000 feet I think and uh, so so uh, I set up for it right quick and put the gear back down and the precautionary approach is flown at about 175 knots if I remember correctly and so that was way too fast for me to ever get Stopped, and so I shut the engine down, probably at 200 feet or something, and dead sticked and max aerodynamic braking, you know, the nose way up, and a little bit of braking, and got her slowed down and turned off the end of the runway. But anyway, the engine kept running for me. Uh, certainly, the, the, those uh, ejection seats were the very early Martin Bakers. Uh, called Martin Baker Backbreaker, and uh, <laughs> it was just a single charge, you know, and, and you had to have 600 feet to use it. So, uh, but we <laughs> we had this uh, one Marine guy flying the the F9 Cougar, which we'd flown in advanced training, and also took to the carrier. But. Uh, he had uh, engine failure or something in the pattern, or ran out of gas. I don't know what happened, but anyway, but he ejected, uh, and the airplane just went and landed itself in a field. Huh. And so he's he's out with uh, you know fractured vertebrae for six months. Ooh. That airplane, that airplane was back flying within about a month. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Uh, when they say Grumman uh, Ironworks, they mean it. You know, they, I understand. They built strong right, and, uh, Yep. Uh, now, you're about ready to set sail on your risk and you go to war, but uh, you married your lovely wife before that, didn't you? I did. My dear Carol, <clears throat> we've been engaged uh, before I went in the Navy, and then the NAVCAD program says you can't be married. So, of course, some of them were, but... Uh, we uh, we waited, and uh, I got uh, I got my wings in October of '66, and also my commission. And uh, she was waiting, so home to Hendersonville, and married that wonderful gal. And we packed everything we had into a little TR4 and headed for San Diego. <laughs> I've known you for a long time, John. You know she's too pretty for you, right? <laughs> I'm married way above myself. I sure did. <laughs> that 
Okay, all right. Andersonville, marrying that, that boy from Horseshoe, I, I'm, I'm lucky. <laughs> all right, then you set sail on the USS Oriskany, and you're going to war in 67. Tell me your thoughts about set sail to go to war. Well, first you had to learn to fly the Crusader, and uh, they had a replacement air group where they trained you to fly. Uh, it was the VF-124 at Miramar, and uh, so we, it was a pretty long program to uh, learn to fly the Crusader and get your carrier called and all that stuff. Um, the, the Crusader, <clears throat> I don't know if they'd name it the Crusader nowadays, uh, might uh, violate some PC rule, but anyway, the Crusader was a single-seat um, supersonic day-night uh, air superiority fighter, and uh, you you just think of the tremendous advances from 1947 when Chuck Yeager gets through uh, and goes supersonic, and then in 1957 we had an airplane capable almost Mach two. Flying off of carriers, um, that was that, that's quite a quite a move forward for uh, for aerodynamic uh, and development of of airplanes. So the Crusader yeah. was uh, it was my first choice to fly. That uh, the Navy also was flying the F four Phantom at the time, but I liked the idea of the single seater, and so <clears throat> there was, and um, it, it's a it's a sort of a difficult airplane to fly. It's a, it comes aboard the carrier really fast, uh, 140 to 144 knots, and wow. um, so it, and, it, and it's a little tricky. It's got uh, a two-position wing where the wing rises up out of the fuselage and gives you better visibility and a whole lot more lift and so forth. But it's a very slick airplane. It actually fly faster than it can. Uh, huh. The the early models were limited to about 1.7 Mach, and then the later ones for 1.9. They added ventral fins to the back of the airplane, and that gave it a little bit more stability out there at those high Mach numbers. It would cruise at 50,000 feet. It had just Tons of range, you know, gas. It was, it was just one heck of an airplane. You, uh, you really liked that F eight, didn't you, John? I did. Um, if, uh, somebody said you you see so few humble F eight pilots because they have so little to be humble about. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were a little cocky. I guess we were a little cocky. It uh, it had a we didn't have a big radar like the F4s did, and so uh, we mostly worked uh, on air to air, you know, practice dogfighting, simulate dogfighting, and so we were, we were generally pretty good at that. We were always looking to get to the rear quarter uh, and get behind the enemy, and uh, that's that's helpful if yeah. the enemy's behind you to start with. So, <laughs> okay, let's let's go. Let, uh, won't you describe your first combat mission, and then uh, you can go ahead and talk about some other missions too. Describe your first mission. Okay, well, we uh, we got to uh, Yankee Station in the Tonkin Gulf, uh, July of '67, 
And we got there just when they had opened up some new targets. Uh, it was called Route Package 6, which is Hanoi and Haiphong. Uh-huh. So we, uh, we, we got there without much warning of what we were going to be up against. And so I guess my first mission was uh, recce up in the islands. And, of course, there's nobody shooting at you. So it just kind of worked you in a little bit to, to get used to flying over a foreign country and knowing your way around and so forth. And, but we uh, we had three carriers usually on Yankee Station. Um, and so we'd be flying either cyclic hops, which are about an hour 45 cycles. And and then we would fly the alpha strikes. And we'd fly about three of those a day. And the alpha strikes were the big air wing strikes where you, you put the... Put Lots and lots of airplanes up there. You had the fighters up there covering them, and you had the bombers doing the bombing and so forth. We did this day and night. The Ariskany, we mostly did day, um, but my goodness, those days were long. They had your 12. Well, you it, 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 go ahead. 12 hours? Well, yeah, you were on a 12 hour cycle, and of course, the troops were more like on a 14-hour cycle by the time they did all the things they had to do. You you talk about some uh, uh, hard-working, great guys for those sailors, especially on the flight deck, which is yeah. uh, uh, a, a busy, busy place. A very and, uh, dangerous place, too. It is. They started calling the Crusader the Gator because if, <laughs> if you walked under the intake too close, it would suck you right in. <laughs> oh, oh, man. <laughs> the okay. gator. Uh, yeah, you, but, you, you, uh, you were saying like a, a a big mission. How many planes would be on one of these big missions? Uh, depends on what the bomb load was. Uh, we, were, we were given the uh, Hanoi Thermal Power Plant and on that one, it was a there was lots of supporting airplanes, but like there were only four strike airplanes because we were using this Wallab, which was the, probably the first of the smart bombs <clears throat> that guided on contrast, and so there were only four. Uh, but normally, you know, you'd have about 12, um, 16 uh, A4s dropping bombs. You might have the sister squadron could carry bombs. In the, on the F-8, so they were doing the same thing. You had to have people go in and do flak suppression. They would go first and try to knock down some of the flak that was around the target. And and then you had to have the uh, iron hand, which was to uh, suppress the SAMs, the A-4 carrying a, a Shrike missile, which would fly right down the beam of the SAM and blow up the van itself. Wow. You'd have them coming in first and coming out last. and That was one of our main missions was to escort that A-4. <laughs> and then you had your yeah. target combat air patrol, you know, and then you got the mid-cap up there, so <laughs> it, it was quite a 
what an aerial ballet to put all that together. I guess so. I guess so. All right, John, we're going to a, yeah, we got to go to our second break. Folks, we'll be right back with us. Please stay with us. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with uh, uh, John Loftner. He's a fighter pilot in Vietnam. John, go ahead and tell us a little bit more about your missions and also what it was like to lose a pilot. Uh, um, Well, we had several different missions, uh, that the fighters flew. The first one was uh, called a bar cap. That's a barrier cap that was always up between you and the enemy. <clears throat> that was over the water. And then uh, then you had the tar cap, which is a tar combat air patrol. And that went in with the strike group and pretty much stayed with the strike group. And then the good one was the mid cap, where you the fighters would be on a different frequency from the strike and uh, we were there primarily to to protect against the MiGs and go after them if they came up which they didn't come up against the Crusader they didn't do well against the Crusader at all because we we were good at that turning and burning stuff and so the final uh, tally was uh, 19-3 in favor of the Crusader Wow, that was yeah, it was, and only one of those three ever saw the guy that shot him down. So 
to him. Anyway, if we could see him and get turning with him, then then we'd do pretty well. Um, we did some armed recce on those when we were doing cyclic ops. We'd, uh, the targets would be smaller. Sometimes it's just armed recce, and you're looking for uh, truck parks and anything that has to do with the petroleum oil or lubricants, you know, that we're trying to stop the flow of that to the south. Yeah. Um, I told you about Iron Hand. That's uh, A-4 carrying uh, <clears throat> the Shrike missile, which would which would fly down the uh, the beam of the surface-to-air missile, the SAM. And so when, when they would see that coming, they'd see the smoke trail of that coming at them, they'd shut it down. And so it kind of had, even without hitting them, you had done your job. Because they shut the system down, and and we found out that if the uh, escorting F eight launched a uh, Zuni uh, rocket out through there, it had a big white plume behind it too, and so they shut that down, even though it was an unguided Zuni rocket. Uh, <laughs> that that helped with the suppression. And well, then maybe yeah. the most important mission that we would fly would be breast cap rescue, combat air patrol, and when a pilot was down, the war stopped. Everything was dedicated then to getting him out if we could, and and we got some out. We, we uh, the, the big mother helicopter would <clears throat> go in, and he'd be escorted by the, the uh, A-1 Sky Raiders, and they're, they're slow and got lots of time on station and lots and lots of firepower and, and go in and, and we picked we picked quite a few up um, yeah some of them had the A1s the were the, yeah the A1s were prop driven yeah 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 they were they were Korean War vintage but they were really really good and even the Air Force uh, used them for the same thing oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And so uh Anyway, but I was uh, I was the schedules officer. I worked for uh, the operations officer, the <clears throat> great Dick Shaffert, and uh, he he was he was a warrior, and uh, so <clears throat> I saw him tell somebody recently that he never changed one of my schedules. Uh, he, well, he did too, because he would go. <laughs> find out uh, where we were going and he'd come back and say now put us on this this is a good one this is a good one oh god uh, i know what his idea good mission is uh, it's downtown hanoi you know john what was it like going to downtown hanoi i mean that was the most heavily defended area in the world at the time <laughs> what was it like going downtown hanoi Oh well, you know you you start off and you and the and the strike leader heads in and you start doing what you're supposed to do whether you're tar cap or iron hand or whatever and iron hand would go in first of course come out last and you'd start hearing this rup rup you know and that was the long range search radar and next you'd start hearing the uh, anti aircraft radar. And then finally, you'd start hearing Sam's in the air. The, that was a different sound coming into your little receiver. 
And once you got up around uh, Hanoi, you might as well just turn that thing off because it's nonstop SAM alert. <laughs> and so if you can't hear very well because it's going off, you know, in your ear. <laughs> so you just turn the darn thing off and uh, and just keep your eyes open. With the SAM, you... You had to, uh, we had some gear that put a little false targets around us, and we had chaff and stuff like that, but but the uh, North Vietnamese would manually track you rather than letting the missile automatically track you and go for that false target around your yeah. airplane. So so they're manually tracking you, so, so here comes the SAM, and you make a little move, and it makes a little move too, and then you know it's looking at you. So now you have to use its tremendous speed against it, basically with a barrel room maneuver where you're changing three-dimensionally and and uh, make it overshoot you. I mean, it had like a 400-pound warhead in it, so you didn't want it to be close, you know. So if you do everything right, it will uh, it'll go behind you. You outturn it, then you try to re gain your bearings and get back on the wing of your A4 or whatever your, your leader or whatever yeah and it was not unusual at all to have 30 of those come out of uh, Hanoi 30 uh, air missiles wow yeah plus all uh, it's flat and, but we, uh, about, we got they're yeah. about the size of a telephone pole too but, uh, <laughs> did you have to dodge very many John uh, yeah, and and uh, yeah, of course, and then because flying Iron Hand, you know, they're going to be shooting at you a lot. But uh, yeah, it's about uh, it, you. You really can't see it very well after it drops the booster off, and then it's not telephone pole length anymore. <laughs> it's not, and uh, and it, you you have to pick it up. That's why you never like to fly with an undercast because you, you couldn't see them. And. Uh, and so, yeah, there were times when you're just lucky and the dang thing flies by you and you never saw it. But it didn't Unbelievable. Hit so. uh, the folks, may, a lot of folks may have known about it, but they probably forgot. A lot of folks don't know about it. Tell us about the one of your sister ships disaster, USS Forest Um. Well, no, Forest uh, I think that was a stand-down day for us. Uh We'd have those occasionally, and and um, got word that the Forrestal would pull alongside of her, and uh, she had just gotten there. Might have been the third day, and then this big fire erupts, and so we're just kind of watching. And of course, our helicopters are going back and forth, picking people up and bringing them to our sick bay, and so a lot of people hurt. And, uh, you know, there was, I just remember seeing a lot of uh, trash in the wake of the ship, you know, drop tanks and uh, and just all kinds of gear floating in tell the, the water. People, and, tell the people how that fire started. Tell the folks what happened. Well, I, I, I do want to tell you because <laughs> there's, a, there's a, a silly story out there about John McCain and 
<clears throat> doing some hot shot, uh, hot start or something, and it set off the bombs uh, next to him, and the Navy covered it all up, and that's all a lot of uh, <clears throat> hooey. Um, okay. That's not what happened at all. Uh, it was exactly what uh, the inquiry showed. There was a, a phantom uh, loaded with uh, some Zuni rockets, and it, and it, I think it was a Zuni. And anyway, that when they put power to the airplane, the stray voltage, which you're supposed to check for, but fired the thing, and it went over and hit McCain's uh, airplane. He had a... a tank on the bottom of the airplane and then he had bombs on the airplane and and he uh, he crawled out over the refueling probe and dropped to the deck and took off running and and uh, he got hit by shrapnel from the bombs and everything you know and then they tell this story that how the Navy all covered it up because his daddy and his granddaddy were admirals that's not so at all uh, it was it was <clears throat> it was a terrible accident but no one was at fault, certainly not McCain. And <clears throat> I'm not real, uh, I wasn't always real fond of McCain. Uh, he was a, he was an instructor at uh, Meridian, McCain Field, named for his granddaddy. And uh, he was, he, yeah, he was a party boy and all that stuff. But <clears throat> boy, when he uh, transferred over to the Oriskany, uh, he was in the thick of it. And he did a good job and, and he did a great job as a as a POW, so uh, yeah. I I can't find fault with him. But but that story floating around on the internet is is untrue, and it's a it's a disgrace that someone would make that kind of stuff up about McCain. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That uh, that Zuni rocket that struck uh, McCain's plane, it, the resulting explosions and fire killed 134 men injured 161 and destroyed 21 aircraft. Uh, uh, we we could have lost that aircraft carrier. Uh, that That's a lot of detonation on that thing, and a lot of people died. But uh, God bless him. God bless him. Yeah. John, we're going, and, we're going, we're, and, yeah, go, go, go ahead. And the year before, you know, was the Ariskany fire. And, right. and uh, that one... Uh, could have lost the ship on that one too. It was yeah. it was in a forward uh, part of the hangar bay, and there were um, phosphorus uh, flares going off. Well, yeah, the, the flight deck of an aircraft carrier is one of the most dangerous places on Earth, and there's reasons for that. Uh, that's why it's coordinated like a ballet, as you said. All right, we are going to our last break. Stay with us, folks. Uh, we'll be right back. Hi, this is Rocky Former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. 
I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand, joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back with uh, John Loeffner. Uh John, uh, <laughs> tell us about your missions, uh, some more missions, and also uh, what's it like to lose your, your, your friends? I mean, you're in the briefing room one day, and then they don't come back after the mission. What is that like, and how do you deal with it? Well, yeah, we unfortunately, we lost lots of them. Um, Peter Fay has written a book called Buddy 16, uh, referring to Air Wing 16, uh, which is what we were on the Arisconade of Air Wing. And, uh, yeah, it's tough. I, you, you go into the briefing, especially for an alpha strike where you've got a lot of pilots in there, and, and you know you're going to probably, if you're going to Hanoi, you're going to lose one, maybe two. Uh, but, you just you just go through the motions, and you know when somebody gets hit, you know he might be dead in the cockpit. He might be a POW. He might make it back with holes in his airplane. So, uh, and we we knew that the POWs were being tortured, uh, and we knew there were traitors in this country. We didn't appreciate Jane Fonda sitting there on that. 37 millimeter. Since we were on the other end of that gun, we, we didn't think that was too funny. But one thing, Pete, in spite of the losses, we did not back off. We we kept doing it just what we were supposed to do. And that we had great leadership, uh, both at the CAG level and the squadron level. And uh, we were over there to do a job and we were going to do it. So... Yeah. You mentioned you hit that big power plant. Uh, a month or so later, John McCain hit the same power plant and got shot down, right? Yes, he did. And, uh, yeah, we got a, the, the guys in the air wing, the A4 guys all carried 35-millimeter cameras. So we we have some really good pictures of things. Uh, you know, the... Uh, the strikes and uh, the one MIG fight we had. This A4 guy was taking pictures of the MIG all the time, and, and <laughs> they were really good. One of the pictures is uh, the instant that McCain's 
airplane hit the ground. Um, I asked him if he had that. He said, of course I do. <laughs> that was about it. Uh, but, <clears throat> you you anyway, told me about you told me about one of your pilots that was addicted to the, the filming and everything, and he was filming something. <laughs> then he realized he was the one being shot at. <laughs> yeah, he he uh, he. That you need you need something to kind of pass your time and have a little hobby, and so he took up Super Eight millimeter, uh, and he would be up. He'd commandeer a tug, and he'd be up on the flight deck, you know, and mm-hmm. driving around and filming everything. And but, but he liked to film uh, um, when he was on a mission too. I don't know how he t- had time to do that, but but um, he had the Sam in flight, and so uh, he's filming it. And, uh, here it comes, and here it comes, and suddenly he realizes that. You know, objects uh, are closer than they appear, and uh, <laughs> so he <laughs> he quick <laughs> makes a hard break, and and uh, he picked up a lot of a lot of holes in his airplane from that thing. But he got back okay, and of course he never admitted that he was looking through his Super Eight millimeter at the time. <laughs> I think he said uh, they counted the holes in his aircraft. There were about a hundred holes in his airplane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't count them myself, but that's what I heard. It was pretty well peppered. Uh, oh, man. Which, now, you had yeah. sort of, of a second tour, John. Tell us about that real quick. Uh, well, they had restricted the, the bombing the, uh, the, of uh, Hanoi and Haiphong, and so we were pretty much down around the van, and there's still, still a good bit of anti-aircraft and some SAMs, but nothing like the, the first cruise, and we did a good bit of flying in uh, Laos, and they did some seeding uh, of rivers and things, mines that they would drop. I, my, you know, my memory is not all that great about details. I think some of the guys have great memories. I mean, they remember things that never even happened, but uh, <laughs> but but mine's not so good. So the second tour was pretty easy. We didn't we didn't leave anybody. Uh, out of our squadron behind. Okay. Well, after all of your combat and all your missions, 155 combat missions, John, your plane never got a scratch, nor did you. Is that correct? That's right. Lucky, lucky man. Uh, still. <laughs> no, luck. You're right, Pete. You're right. <laughs> You're very lucky. I'll tell you what now. Apparently, they thought you were pretty good at what you did because uh, then you went to join Maverick and Goose and Iceman at the Top Gun School. Tell us a little bit about the Top Gun School. Actually, uh, the the, uh, Crusader uh, Replacement Air Group put that together uh, between the two cruises, and so they wanted a guy from each squadron who, uh, you know, had a a talent or a liking for, for that sort of stuff, and and it was an advanced uh it was an advanced training program. The idea was to come out of that program uh and be a weapons training officer back at the squadron and so it was it, it was a really great little school and we got our started uh about two months before the f four people started theirs and we named ours the Crusader Fighter Weapons School and 
they named theirs Top Gun, and so guess who gets the glory? But anyway, the F-8 was on its way out, um, and the F-14 was coming in, so that uh, that school that I went to um, was good for about a year, and then and then they quit. And by the way, that movie, uh, yeah. And discount that too. Uh, you know, you'd think that <laughs> <laughs> you'd think that the purpose of the movie or, or the school was to uh, see who was the top gun, and that wasn't it at all. It was <laughs> it was to train you to go back and be, you know, advanced and able to uh, teach weapons. And there was some really good stuff that uh, that we learned and that we were able to teach back at the squadron. So. All right, well, you did... Uh, go, I'm sorry, John. You, uh, we'll get a lot of things in. We're going to run out of time, but you had to hit the silk one time. Tell us about hitting the silk. I did. Uh, I'll try to be quick. Uh, I went from uh, VF-111 Sundowners up to VX-4, which is a fighter test and evaluation squadron, and we had five different airplanes up there that we could fly, and uh, one of my favorites was the F-86, but uh, not many Navy pilots got to fly that. But anyway, I was out on a tactics hop, and uh, we happened to be uh, south of Edwards instead of out over the water. And uh, I was tracking a, uh, an F-4 and in a simulated dogfight, and suddenly the airplane rolls to the right, and Crusader rolled about 700 degrees a second. So... Uh, that's what it did, and training says you turn loose of it, and so I turned loose of it, but I knew right away something was bad wrong. Put all the left control that I had in it, and it, and it kind of slowed its roll down a little bit. I finally got it to where I could slide around in about a 30-degree bank with full left controls, and I could see in my rearview mirrors that the, the spoilers were sticking up on both sides, which wasn't right. So anyway, worked it out over the mountains, and and let her go. I flew it for about 15 minutes or so, just talking to people at the squadron. We couldn't figure out what was wrong. What had happened was the a rod between the aileron and the spoiler had uh, come undone, and <clears throat> it allowed the spoiler and the aileron to go to its full travel, which is beyond normal full up. So, what was it like punching out, John? Well, I just, uh, you know, I pulled the handle. I used the one uh, uh, between my legs instead of the face curtain because I sit kind of tall in the seat. And, and you know, it's a rocket seat, so it, it's a nice uh, nice ride. I went out about 325 knots and, and um, 12,500 feet. And, uh, yeah, I had a good... Good ride down in the parachute and landed on a on a mountain and had the other guys were flying around me so they knew I was okay. There well, was your your F eight. Uh, you tried to direct your F eight away from uh, you know <laughs> uh, civilian areas, but your jet landed some guy's backyard, didn't it? Hey, I did. I, I, how it how it went? See, I figured as soon as I turned it loose, you know, it'd start rolling again at that incredible roll rate, and it would just nose straight down. Well, 
it was about three miles from where I landed. I don't know how it went so far, but anyway, that guy, uh, he, uh, when the CBs came to dig out the parts, he he had them doing all kinds of stuff, building driveways and taking down banks. And, uh, yeah, he was, but, well, that airplane hit hard. That engine was 28 feet deep, so. The engine was 28 feet in the ground. Yeah, Woo. And that's, still, that's, they were the able to. That's and the still, they were able to uh, determine the cause of the accident. They found a, wow. a nut, a nut that was safety wired the wrong way. John, you eventually uh, won't get to your final thoughts here in just a split second. But you flew civilian uh, aircraft for Northwestern Airlines. How long did you fly with Northwestern? Northwest. Uh, well, I started off with Southern and uh, then Republic, and um, so thirty years. Yeah, thirty years. Had, re- had to retire at age sixty. Uh, they're retiring at sixty-five now, so they're getting a little bit more time. Yeah. Did you enjoy yeah. your career flying commercially? I did. I did. That was good. Uh, yeah. That, that was a good career. It's been good to me. I know it has been, and love you to death. And everything. I want your final thoughts on Vietnam, real quickly. Uh, you can't do it quick, but it was, I mean, I think it was a noble effort, Pete. Uh, you know, we were committed to Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, and as far as our party in it, uh, the fighter pilots in the Navy, it was to support the guys on the ground in the South. And uh, those guys I flew with, they uh, just the finest group of people I've ever known, and some of them gave it all. Um, I think the hippies that we were up against gave us a lot of uh, today's problems, but yes, sir. they live with what they did, and they can live with, I'll live with mine. Yes, sir. John, we got to go. Thank you so much for being my guest today, John. You take care of yourself. You take care of my stem and airplane, too, dude. <laughs> and thank you, Pete. Thanks for all you do for the vets, okay? We appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.